man. It's so good to be back with you. It's been a little while since I've been able to come up here and be with you on the Lord's Day. And uh, we've been working our way through in our church on uh, the book of James. So what I would like you to do is open your Bibles with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. It's kind of worked out really well because uh, I will be here today and then the next Lord's Day. And uh, we're actually working on the text that most of us are familiar with discussing the topic of saving faith and how it relates to works. This is James chapter 2, verse 14 through 20 for today. And what I'd like to talk about today is discussing the topic of non-saving faith, specifically lonely faith. So I'm going to read the text. This is James chapter 2, verse 14. And I'll read down through verse 20. The word of God says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Last Monday on February 6th, we learned of the very tragic event that occurred in Turkey and Syria of one of the most massive earthquakes that has occurred in the recent decades in that area. That uh, earthquake has, in some spots, opened the earth. Uh, There are gaping holes over there now, some as far as 650 feet wide and 100 feet deep. I just read the total just a few moments ago of the current death toll. Now it's up to 33,000 people who have died in that tragic event. The the impact of the earthquake was felt in that whole area. Uh, It was a 7.8 on the Richter scale in its highest form and then a 7.5 after that. It is now considered one of the most deadly earthquakes ever in that region. There have been over 12,000 buildings that have been leveled, flattened. A lot of the reasons why is because a lot of those structures were built without the codes that some of the newer buildings are built with in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, They were more of the old line codes that didn't have the ability to handle such violent earthquakes. Hundreds of thousands of people have, have now been made homeless and sadly are short on food and water and are really, really cold. It's bitter over there right now in that area. And Turkey is one of those areas that is prone to earthquakes. The seismic area is very large. It's not uncommon for them to have earthquakes. In fact, in January 2020, there was a magnitude 6.7 earthquake in that area. And then in 1999, there was a 7.4 magnitude earthquake that killed 18,000 people. And the quake hit near a very populated area, which of course caused the deaths to be very high. So this ongoing tragedy that we're watching develop over in Turkey and Syria 
if anything at all, it should help us to see the urgency of making sure that you're right with the right God. One of the most disturbing things of all of this is not the earthquake. It's not even, it's not even the death of 33,000 people at this point. The most tragic thing is, is that the majority of the people over there in that area that have died were of the Islamic religion. And they believe that Allah is the true God. And they don't believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross. And they don't affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. And they only affirm him as a prophet. So the sobering reality is, is that the large majority of that 33,000 people have died and gone to an eternal hell. So you can see that there's a great urgency in making sure that you have the right religion, the right God, and definitely the right faith. Without the right faith, you can end up in this eternal hell. Jesus himself referred to an incident in his own ministry that many, of course, were familiar with, that there was a tower that had collapsed near the Pool of Siloam. And there were 18 people that were tragically killed in that event. And of course, the question often is brought up in those times that if someone dies in a tragic event like that, that usually it was assumed because of the theology of that time that you were either in sin, uh, your family was in sin, or God was judging you for some reason. So the question was raised about these 18 people that died. It's recorded in Luke chapter 13. And Jesus asked the question to them, do you believe that these that died are worse sinners than other men who dwell in Jerusalem? He answers the question. He says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I cannot think of anything more sobering and more important for us to make sure of is that we have a right relationship with God and that we have true saving faith. True saving faith. You know, we spend a whole lot of time working on other details of life. We'll make sure we have the right kind of retirement. We'll even spend enormous amounts of time making sure we have the right health insurance. We'll even make sure we're saving money on our car insurance. And we'll go beyond the time to make sure we have everything that we need in our home. But we don't spend a whole lot of time, sadly, on the most important thing in our life, which is, do you have true saving faith? And are you ready to meet this God? Because you will. There's a text over in 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, or 13, verse 5, rather, that says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith, test yourselves, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Then he says this, unless indeed you have become unqualified. What does he mean by that? He's basically telling us that as believers, we should be constantly, there are present imperatives in the text, we should be consistently, constantly examining ourselves to make sure we are in the faith. And we are to very, very aggressively test ourselves. That's the word dokimazo. It's used of testing metals. And whenever they would test metals and purify metals, what they often would do is heat them up under fire. And as a result of the fire and the metals melting, the impurities would usually come to the top and you could scrape the impurities off and then you could get pure gold or pure silver. 
And whenever it says to examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith and to test yourselves, that's dokimazo. In other words, aggressively put yourself under the fire. Make sure that you know for sure that you are a Christian. And he even says that, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are unqualified or disqualified. That word is actually a a form of the same word for test. The word test is dokimadzo, and the word disqualified is adokimadzo. It's, It's a negative. In other words, you could even look at it like this. You have been tested and found wanting lacking you're not pure you're not real you're not genuine that's a real problem isn't it do you realize just how easy it is to deceive yourself and the problem is with self-deception is is that you don't know you're deceived if you did you wouldn't deceive yourself it's very tricky because you could actually believe that you're going to heaven and be absolutely convinced that you're okay And miss it altogether. I can't think of anything that is more important for us to discuss. Jesus himself talked about it in Matthew chapter 7. He said there's a broad road that leads to destruction. There's a narrow road that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And the broad road is not the broad road of atheism or agnosticism or just blatant immorality. The broad road is the road of religion. This is the road of people who believe they're okay, that they've met the standards, that they've done the deeds, that they've prayed the prayer, that they have the faith that is necessary to make it to heaven. In that same chapter, he says some of the most sobering words that all of us have read, where Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And he will say to them, I never knew you they were involved in ministry prophecy just simply means to proclaim to to speak before they were preaching heralding forth the truth they were literally casting out demons and doing miracles jesus doesn't even question the legitimacy of the miracles he simply says i never knew you and then he tells them to depart from him those who practice lawlessness. The New Testament often actually talks about true faith versus the kind of faith that does not save. Listen to these verses, like, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. Now, it's one thing to read that text. That's often read during the time of the resurrection that we celebrate. But Jesus, or rather Paul, rather, says something here that's most profound. He says, you are saved if you hold fast. And then he qualifies and says this, unless you have believed in vain. In other words, there's a potential that you could believe, but not savingly believe. Luke chapter 8, verse 13, Jesus says, But the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, and who only believe for a while. Matthew 24, 13 talks about another evidence of true saving faith, which is endurance or perseverance. 
He says in chapter 24, verse 13, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 3, 14 says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And then also Hebrews 10, 38 and following says, now the just shall live by faith. We all agree with that. But then the writer of Hebrews says, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But then he says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but we are those who believe unto the preservation of the soul. So the point of that text is there are some who believe, but they don't believe savingly and they draw back. And if they do, then they don't believe to the salvation and the preservation of the soul. James is addressing this very same issue in the text I read to you. The potential is, is that you could believe in vain. You could have faith that is not real saving faith. You could believe and go to hell. That's amazing, isn't it? In the text that we have before us in James 2, in verse 17, he says, faith by itself is dead. He says in verse 20, faith without works is dead or useless. Verse 26, faith without works is dead. The contrast in the passage is not works versus faith, as so often many misunderstand the text. The contrast in the text is living faith versus dead faith. True faith versus the kind of faith that doesn't save, or false faith. Alastair Begg said regarding this text, he says, A sincere claim to have faith is not necessarily synonymous with a sincere faith. We can be sincere in our claim and yet be sincerely wrong. John Newton, who wrote the great hymn Amazing Grace in an earlier generation, talking about non-saving faith, gave the image of non-saving faith like this. He said, it's like an individual who appears in a church when it's summoned by the bell to repeat words because others do the same. To hear what is delivered from the pulpit with little attention or affection unless something occurs that is suited to exalt self or to soothe the conscience. And then to run with eagerness back out the door into the world again. He said that's what non-saving faith is. Too many through the years have been confused by this passage and believe that what James is teaching here is the opposite of what the Apostle Paul preached and taught. Some believe that James is actually teaching and instructing in another gospel altogether. Any of you who have studied the Reformation are very familiar with the fact that the Roman Catholic Church did not roll over and play dead whenever Martin Luther preached justification by faith alone. They didn't just give up on it. In fact, they responded. And they responded in a formal way whenever they wrote their articles on the sixth session of the Council of Trent. And they specifically used James chapter 2 to prove their point. The justification is by works, not faith alone. In fact, the verses that they chose to use was in James chapter 2 verse 21 and following, which says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar, do you see then that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith is made perfect. You see in verse 24, then, that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, also Rahab, the harlot, was justified by works. So they take this text and they prove, 
incorrectly, that salvation is by works in defense of their particular theology. There's even a debate as to whether or not this letter is written before Romans or after Romans. Some believe that Romans was written and then James was written to counter Romans. And then others believe that James was written and then Romans was written to counter James. But the point is, is that many just misunderstand exactly what James is saying here. He's not unclear at all. Martin Luther referred to this letter as a letter or epistle of straw. Now, what he meant by that was that he was referring back to the 1 Corinthians chapter 3 passage that tells us that you can build on only one foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. And you can build with different things. You can build with wood, hay, or straw, or you can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. But the foundation is Christ and the gospel. And what he was saying is, is that this letter of James is really just one of those letters that is like straw. You really can't build your life on it because it's not built on Christ. He didn't like the letter initially because it didn't have the name of Christ, but only two times. But I have to tell you, the good news is, even though he struggled with the canonicity of the book of James, he later came around, repented of that, and preached through James verse by verse. He began to see what the book of James was teaching so in our journey through this text, what we're going to see is that James does not contradict the book of Romans. In fact, it affirms the teaching of the book of Romans. It does not teach that salvation is by works, but it does teach that true salvation produces works. It's not teaching that faith is a faith that is fruitless. Rather, it teaches that true living faith produces works. Now, as we come to the text, and we won't deal with all of it today because next Lord's Day we'll deal with the second portion of it. But for now, we're going to consider verses 14 through 20. And if you'll follow along with me, I think you'll find this very, very interesting. I told our church this morning that this is one of those texts that you could read and uh, we could just go home. It's that simple. It really is. It's not hard to believe. It's not hard to understand. But like I told them this morning, I get paid to do this, so I need to do it. And do it well and do it for a very long time. So verse 14, the question of dead faith. That's the point. The question of dead faith. Look at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? At the very beginning of the text, he says, what does it profit? Now, really, the literal reading of that is what profit? Or as some translations have it, what's the use? Or what use is it? One translation is, what good is it? And it's all really built around that idea that what is the benefit of or what is the uh, advantage of having a faith that says you believe, but it doesn't do anything. And he's going to build his argument. And he asks the question at the end of verse 14, can faith save him? The word faith there has what is called a definite article. If you were to read it literally, it can the faith save you. And the point is, can that kind of faith that doesn't have works, is it possible to be saved by that kind? James is going to continue to argue, in fact, that it will not save you, that if you have a faith that does not have works, it is not a saving faith. And his point is that you can believe and sincerely believe, but miss heaven. 
altogether. So he says, what, what about this faith? Can this kind of faith save you? His answer, and by the construction of the original text is, it anticipates an answer, no. No, this kind of faith that does not have works, it cannot save you. This is the theme of the passage. Can faith, listen to this, exist by itself? Can it be alone and save you? Is believing enough? Can the kind of faith that does not act truly save someone? Now, millions believe, right? Especially here in the Southern Bible Belt, if you were to do a survey of most people here where we live, they would tell you that they believe. They might tell you that they believe in God. They may tell you even that they believe that Jesus is a literal person. They may say that they believe Jesus was born of a virgin. They could believe that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. And most of the cases you will find that there are many people, most likely in the South, millions of people who would say they believe that. And there are millions who have believed that. But you need to understand that all the people who are in hell are believers. Every one of them. There's no atheists there. No agnostics. No one wondering whether or not this is true. No one saying, you know what, I just don't know if we had all the right books in the Bible or whether it was inspired. No one wondering whether or not Jesus actually literally rode, rose physically from the grave. No questions about whether or not there are angels and demons no questions or disbelief as to whether or not there is hell or heaven. Those who are in hell are believers. They believe. They believe. Judas Iscariot was a believer. Did you know that? He believed. In fact, he was so convincing about his own belief that he was made the treasurer of the disciples. He believed. Many who are in ministry today believe. And as Jesus points out that there were many that even followed him that saw the miracles, witnessed the signs, saw the profound miracles that Jesus did of the resurrection of the dead, the healing of the lepers, the giving of blind, a sight to the blind, the giving of hearing to the deaf, and the creation, literal creation of fish and already baked bread to 25,000 people plus on one occasion and probably that much on a second occasion. So there were thousands of people that followed him and on one occasion whenever it finally came down to the end and they were going to give an opportunity whether or not they were going to continue to follow Jesus they walked away they walked away oh yeah they believed but they temporarily believed and they did not savingly believe and some have suggested that this passage that we're looking at here in James 2 is one of those times whenever James just kind of cuts off his thought and starts a whole new thought that it was like the abrupt beginning of it and verse 14. So they think that he's introducing an entirely new section here in James. Some commentators believe that to be the case. I don't. And the reason why I don't is because in chapter two and also chapter one, he is building on this entire theme that you and I, if we're truly regenerate and truly saved, there is a product that comes out of our faith. You are changed. Like for instance, in James two, one, he says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. His point was is that you cannot be partial and at the same time be a true believer. It doesn't work. 
James chapter 1 verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What is he saying? That the way you get saved is by going to visit the widows? Going to help the orphans? Is that what he's saying? Or as long as you make sure you don't watch a movie on TV? Is that what he's telling you? No, what he is saying is that true saving faith affects your response to people around you and your own personal holiness. And then also James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Here's the text, deceiving yourself. If you are a hearer only and not a doer, that shows us that your faith is not real faith. And then James 1.21, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James 1.19, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. James 1.12, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Over and over and over again, what he is teaching us is that these kinds of people who show their faith to be real are the ones who are tested and are approved by the testing, who are growing in the word and are doers of the word. So whenever we come to James 2.14, he's not introducing a new text. He's not introducing a new subject. He's basically building on the same theme. And in many ways, he's actually going to clarify it even more and make it very clear. In other words, James is telling us that the kind of faith that is truly a saving faith is a faith that transforms. It changes our conduct. It moves us from the academic to action. It moves us from just merely believing facts to actually having a change in behavior. It's more than instruction and illumination. It's more than academics and dissent. It's the change of the heart and the mind, yes, but also it affects the will. It affects the want, the desire. It affects the passion, the drive, the direction, the ambition. Like one pastor years ago when I was first saved used to say it like this, you cannot have the sovereign God of the universe come and live inside of your body and there be no results. That's not possible. That's not possible. You've got the God who created everything. If you remember, the Holy Spirit lives with you, right? Go back and read Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, and find out what the Holy Spirit was doing back then. This same Holy Spirit who was actively, actively involved in creating the universe lives inside of you. And you cannot tell me that he can live there and there be no effect. At all. That's what James is really driving home to all of us. So verse 14 again, he says, Can that kind of faith save him? The kind of faith that does not have works? Now what he's really talking about is the quality of faith, not the quantity of faith. What I mean by that is this. People often say, well, I believe, or I believe for a long time. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the quality of your faith. The quality. Many people have believed for a very long time but are lost Many people have said that they have been saved in the past, but they are lost. They don't know the Lord. So can you go to, faith on, go to heaven on faith alone? Preaching to a Reformed Baptist church to say that's not possible is almost heresy, right? But if you follow with my thought, what James is arguing is this. 
True saving faith has works. Okay? You don't get saved because of your works. You are saved, therefore you produce works. Big difference. Big difference. He says in the text that someone will say, in verse 14, this is the word lege in the Greek. It basically means to claim something. It's present tense, which means they're going on claiming this. They're continually claiming that they believe, but they don't have works to support it. They say that they believe, but they don't follow through. They don't have the fruit to show that they're actually having saving faith. Another way of saying this is this. If faith is what you claim to have, but works are what you never had, then your faith can't save you. Or if believing Jesus is what you claim to have, but the works are what you used to do, right? You used to do those things, then your faith is not real. And the majority of professing Christians in America are right there. They tell you this. I hear it so many times. Oh, pastor, I believe in Jesus. Oh, pastor, I would say, well, I used to go to church. I used to read my Bible. I used to try to live a holy life. I used to try to talk to people about Jesus. It's all in the past. They're not doing anything now. I ask the question, what happened to your life? The life of God that lives in you, it's not disappeared if you're truly saved. Where did it go? The issue isn't that they lost their salvation. The issue is they never had it to begin with. They had a faith that did not truly save. So in verse 14, he says, what use is it? What use is it to have a faith that doesn't have works? Because his point is, it's not a saving faith. It cannot save you. Spirios Zudiates, who's a Greek scholar, wrote these words regarding this text. He said, this verse is a pronouncement on the practicality of the Christian faith. Christianity is not getting a few notions in our heads, but it's a change of the seed of all of our affections and dispositions, a change of the heart. True, he says, we begin with the head, we have to have the facts, but then it travels to the heart, and then it travels from the heart to the hand. It moves. It's real. The profession of faith that we often hear about today is devoid of righteous works. It's devoid of a desire and a love for Christ and a want to follow him and to give their life to him. It's devoid of those things. It's a very simplistic a faith that is not associated really with any kind of Christian commitment at all. And it is not a saving faith. By the way, did you know this, that the Bible teaches us that you will be judged by your works and God will determine the validity of your faith by your works? Think about that for a moment. God, who's omniscient, who knows everything, he knows whether you have real faith or not. He knows that, right? But he's going to determine the validity of your faith based on what you do or don't do you say no yes the bible says it romans 2 6 says that he will render to each one according to his deeds in the final judgment listen to this he will give eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath I don't know if you noticed in there, you didn't hear anything about Jesus. You didn't hear anything about his death. You didn't hear anything about his resurrection, his death for sin. You didn't hear anything about the gospel at all, nothing. But yet God is telling us that he can determine whether or not you truly do believe in Christ based upon what you do or you don't do. 
Jesus even said the same thing. In John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, Jesus said these words, Do not marvel at this. At the hour, the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear my, hear my voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Wow, that sounds totally contradictory to what we believe about the gospel and being genuinely saved. But what he's telling us is this. God can tell whether or not you're real based on what you do or don't do. Your faith, if it's real, it produces works. It shows itself. It fleshes itself out. So you see the question of dead faith there, that it is actually useless if you have some faith that doesn't have works. But let's move to the second point, and that is the illustration of deedless faith. Verse 15, he uses a very simple and very well-known problem that many faced in those days, and that is the need of the poor person. Okay, look at it in verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things needed for the body, what is the use? Or what's the profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is a very simple yet profound illustration of what James is driving home. Poverty was a very real thing in those days. In fact, it was a very common thing. You were either poor or you were rich. There was no middle class. You either had it or you didn't. And there was those in the poor, however, that were really, really poor and those that were just poor. And if you were really poor, you were like beggarly poor that Jesus often refers to. Uh, then you were the one who did not have the necessary clothes to keep yourself warm at night in those cold nights in Israel, or you were one who did not have your daily needs for food met if you were beggarly poor. And so he's talking about that kind of person, the kind of person who can't take care of himself in his basic needs, basic everyday needs. And the comparison is the man who comes up and says to this poor person, hey, you have a great need here, be warmed and filled. But he doesn't really do anything. He doesn't give him food. He doesn't give him any clothes, but he says something. He says something. Notice, first of all, the profound condition of the person, verse 15. It says that the brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. Now, in most normal Greek sentences, the word is is the translation of a Greek word, esten, which usually refers to an ongoing, continuing action. But that's not the word that James uses here. He uses the Greek word, huparkosin. And that word has the idea of looking backwards. In other words, what James is saying here is this, if a brother or sister who has been for some time naked and destitute of daily food and then you say be warmed and filled and the point behind the text is not that you just walked off on him and you never knew he was there this guy's a normal guy hanging out on the streets of jerusalem you see him daily as you go to the temple and to the market and there he is he has no clothes or very little clothes and he's very very hungry doesn't have the basic foods of life, but you go by him over and over and over again, and what do you do? Even after the first day, having met him and known his condition, you come back the second day, and you don't meet his need. You just say, be warmed and filled. 
be warmed in field. And like I told you, that's something that is very common in those days. They would see that. They would understand that. The word gunos is the word for naked. It actually has the idea of scantily clothed. It can refer to absolute nakedness, but primarily here and in most cases like it, it refers to someone who doesn't have clothes much at all. could be just undergarments. Or as one translation he actually gives of the text, it says that the man is in rags. He's in rags. And then the other word that refers to the no daily food, it doesn't refer to starvation, or he wouldn't be there every day necessarily, but he does have very little food. He doesn't have the sufficient nourishment that everyone would normally have, and he's hungry. He can't meet the necessities of life. So James brings up the situation that is very, very basic. Listen to this. It's basic to Christian compassion. You see people all the time, don't we? We all see them. People that are in need. Some of them are faking it. Some of them aren't. Some of them are in real need. And the point was in that day, James is telling us, if you have true saving faith, it responds in works. And then he uses the illustration that is so common to the New Testament of Christian compassion to show genuine faith. Did you know this verse in 1 John three seventeen? But whoever has the world's goods and sees the brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? You can claim all day you love God. You can claim all day you know Jesus. And you can claim all day that you're going to heaven. But if you see a brother or sister in need and you shut up your compassion to him, God says you don't have the love of God in you. You don't have that. So it moves us from the profound condition to the professed compassion. Look at verse 16. He says to one of those, depart in peace. This is what he says. He sees the man repeatedly in this condition. And then he says to him, depart in peace. Be warmed and filled. Now the word peace here is a common rendering of the word that we would be familiar with that the Jews would use, the word shalom. You would go into a house and you may say shalom and that would be peace to this house or peace to this family. And when you would depart, you could say the same thing. It was like a prayer for wellness or a prayer for well-being in the home. Very common among the Jewish people. They understood that. And so what you're basically saying is, brother or sister, I hope it's well with you. I hope it works out for you. Be warmed and filled. And that's fascinating because that verb could be translated in a middle form or a passive form. And if it's translated in a passive form, what that means is, you know, hopefully someone will come and feed you and someone will come and help you. But if it's middle, which it can be taken that way, what it is saying in a very sarcastic tone is, depart in peace, fill yourself, clothe yourself, take care of your own needs. In other words, no compassion. No compassion whatsoever. I shared the story this morning of a friend of mine who uh, attended the first church I pastored, which I pastored full time. And um, I had my own house at that time and I built my own home. So my wife and I lived in our own home. But this church had a parsonage. Now that's kind of something that a lot of churches don't do nowadays. But usually what would happen many years ago now is that churches, whenever they built their buildings, they would build a house right next to the church. And usually the pastor, the lead pastor at least, would live in the house. And so you literally never got away from the church. You lived there. 
And uh, whenever they offered the job to me to be their pastor, they said, well, pastor, we've got this parsonage here and we'd like you to live in it. And I said, no, thank you. I have my own house. They didn't like that, but I lived in my own house. Well, about three years later, the family that I'm talking about came in need. They had lost their home uh, due to the loss of a job. So they needed to find a place where they could live until they could get themselves back up financially and find a new home. And so I thought, well, this is a wonderful opportunity. We have an empty house here that no one lives in. They could live in it. You could not imagine the firestorm that I stirred up among those people trying to get this family to move into that house. You would have thought I was trying to destroy the church. Because the most bizarre things took place I'd never seen in my life. Now remember, this is my first pastorate. So I'm very naive to all of this stuff. I'm thinking, hey, you're a Christian? You're compassionate. Person has a need, empty house, move in. Let's do it, right? Oh no, oh no. There was a campaign that became developed in the church to stop this family from moving into the parsonage. So they started spreading rumors. The first rumor was, if they move into this parsonage... They're going to put goats in the backyard. I know some of you may have goats, but back then it was a really weird thing to have goats in the backyard, all right? And they started spreading rumors that they were going to put goats in the backyard. And then this one man, I never forgot this, and it was the most strange thing. In most normal occasions, he was the nicest man you could ever meet. But that day, he decided it was his important duty to stop this from happening. So he stood out in the foyer of the church, and in those days, people would go out. The pastor would stand there and shake hands as people went out, and you would greet the people as they left. And he, st- he stood there with me with little pieces of paper, handing them to every person coming out and telling them, now these people who want to live in this parsonage don't give a dime to this church. He didn't have a clue what they gave to the church. But he was absolutely determined, along with a number of other elderly people in that church, that he, they were not moving in that building. They were not going to have that house, even for a week. Didn't matter. No compassion at all. And of course, I learned over the years there that I had a whole lot of unregenerate people in that church. Lost people who had been there for years who believed that they were right with God because they grew up in that church or their mother and their father were in that church or whatever. The point was, it was a very clear illustration that these people were lost. They had no compassion for someone who claimed to be a believer in Christ. So you look at the text here in verse 16. He says, You would say to that person, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, and you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. Here's this point. What's the use? Same construction of the first 14. Same exact thing. What profit? What's the benefit? What's the point of you doing that? You just telling me a few words doesn't help my problem. In other words, your words are empty. Your hand is empty. Your heart is empty. Your compassion is void. You're not helping me at all. One author said this, Just as professed compassion without kindness And care is phony, so is that faith, which is nothing but just an empty claim. And that's so true, isn't it? It is so true. So James picks a well 
reasoned analogy, a perfect example of what it means to have true saving faith by showing the person who's unwilling to meet a basic need of someone by human compassion. This was common, by the way. This kind of compassion was an example in the New Testament in the book of Acts. People who were genuinely converted, changed, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they had a desire to meet the needs of one another. In fact, there's some interesting things said in the book of Acts in chapter 2, verse 45. It says, they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone who had a need. Whatever, they, whatever someone needed, if you didn't have it, you would sell what you had so that you could give it to the person who was in need. Acts 2, 40, rather Acts 2, 4, Acts 4, 32, I'm sorry, says this. Now, the multitude of those who believed were in one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of these things he possessed was his own, but they all had things in common. What is he talking about? It would be like you and I saying, hey, listen, my house, my car, my clothes, my food, yours. You need it, it's yours. Whatever I have has been given to me by God, so we're all part of the same body of Christ. If you have a need, I'm willing to meet that need. That's the basic example of human compassion, most importantly, Christian compassion of a regenerated heart. And that's exactly what he's driving home. True, genuine faith acts. True, genuine faith sacrifices. True, genuine faith gives. True, genuine faith works if it's real. Also, if you think about the other passage that is found in Matthew 25, again, we find there that the judgment of God in the final days, we call it the judgment of the sheep and the goats, right? You have... Uh, in the text, it talks about that he will separate them from one another. He will put his sheep on the right-hand side and the goats on the left. So we have the goats on the left. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. And we have the right, the sheep on the right. And the point is, is in those days, how does Jesus determine whether you're a sheep? You look at the outside? Hey, that's a sheep. Looks like a sheep. No, what he does is this. He looks at their deeds. And basically, the deeds are human compassion. He says in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, how do you know you are going to inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world? He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Well, that's strange, isn't it? He's saying that you're going to inherit the kingdom of God because of you helping the people who are poor and going to a prison ministry? Well, actually, yes. And the reason why is because it's motivated and moved by faith. Genuine faith in Christ. The opposite of that is true according to the text on the left hand, he says. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. I mean, you can't get any more real than that, right? We're not talking about your faith is proven because you have some hierarchy of religion or that you are way up in the ministerial roles or maybe you are seminary educated or maybe you have some profound religion. That's not what's being discussed here. He's saying true, genuine faith acts on the most basic, fundamental compassion. That's what he's saying. It goes beyond that, obviously. It goes even further. 
Faith does even more than that, true genuine faith. So verse 17 says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That was the point of the title of the text that I gave to you. Lonely faith doesn't save. If it doesn't have works, it's not real. A lifeless faith is a lonely faith, and a lonely faith is a lying faith. A lying faith. Don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Faith without works is useless, meaningless, not saving, self-condemning, and very, very deceptive. Very deceptive. And that is his point. I kind of use the illustration of dead faith or non-saving faith as a lifeless tree, a tree that has no sap going through it. So you basically have the structure of the tree, but it doesn't produce any leaves or fruit or seeds. But the tree has structure. It looks like a tree, but it has no life going through it. And as time goes on and the tree gets older and more frail and the storms of life come, the limbs break, they fall, and it eventually crumbles to the ground and decays. That's what non-saving faith is like. That's exactly what it's like. So you have the question of dead faith, the illustration of deedless faith, and the last point this afternoon is the observation of orthodox faith. The observation of orthodox faith. Look at it again in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you not know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? This portion of James is probably one of the most shocking in all of the Bible. It clearly teaches us that you can have an orthodox faith and go to hell. You can literally, listen to this, you can have your theology T's crossed and your theology I's dotted and miss heaven altogether. You can be a liberal and go to hell, and you can be a Calvinist and go to hell. You can be a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, an Independent, a Fundamentalist. You can be a Reformed, Charismatic, Pentecostal. You can be an Evangelical. You can be even an Imputationist and miss heaven altogether. Just because you've got your doctrine right doesn't mean you've got the Lord himself just because you attend church or get baptized or take the Lord's table or read your Bible or memorize Bible verses or just because you preach or evangelize or even win people to Christ you can miss heaven yourself you can miss it and when I say things like that <laughs> that should rattle us deep to the core I mean, that should literally almost shock us to think that you can have all of that right and miss heaven altogether and go to hell. But that is James' point, isn't it? That you can have all of these things in line, all of these things right, and not have saving faith. Verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I have probably 50 commentaries on the book of James and almost all of them love to spend some time on this point, trying to figure out who said what in this text. Is this James saying this in verse 18, you have faith and I have works? 
Or is James saying the second part of the verse and the hypothetical person saying the first part of it? And they'll spend page after page after page going through that. And you know what I say? I don't care. Because that doesn't even affect the text at all. Because what James is saying is very clear. He is saying you can claim all day you have faith. But if I have works, it shows you that I have faith. You can't show me your faith without works. Can anyone in here do that? I can't do that. I could tell you all day I believe, but you don't really know that I believe unless you start seeing evidence of that, right? Jesus used the same analogy whenever he was talking about the Spirit of God moving among people and saving them sovereignly in John chapter 3. He said that as you, the Spirit moves among people to save them, it's like the wind coming. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. So is the case here with true saving faith. If it's real... As James says in verse 18, you have faith. You say you have faith. You say you believe. He says, but I have works. I have fruit. I have evidence. He says, show me your faith without your works. The point is, it is not possible. It is not possible. The conclusion of that would be that if you don't have any works, then you don't have faith either. One of the reasons why it's such a struggle to find out what is being said here as far as who is saying it is because in the original Greek text, there is no punctuation. We're blessed because we have punctuation. You think that's bad. You take the Hebrew text, the original Hebrew text that your Old Testament was written in, it was written in all consonants. There's no vowels. So all you have is a long list of consonants, no vowels. It'd be like you reading a book with no A, O, U, I, or E's. Could you do it? You could if you actually spend enough time doing it. But here in this text, there was no punctuation, so it's kind of hard for them to determine that. But we get the point of it, don't we? We know what James is saying here. It's not unclear at all. In chapter 6 of Luke, Jesus said this, But why do you call me Lord, and you do not do the things I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will be I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man building his house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the streams vehemently came against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation. The one who heard and what? Did nothing. Did nothing. So look at verse 19. Here's his point. You, and the you is emphatic. It's first in the original text. And he's really just driving this home because the you here, as you'll note, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he's talking to a group of Jews from the 12 tribes. And specifically, we know that's the case here because he refers to a synagogue in chapter 1. But also here in this text, he refers to the Shema of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And here in this text, he says, you believe that there's one God. And that's good. He says, that's great. Well, if you know the history of Israel, because of their belief in the one true God, they were set apart from all the other pagan nations of the world who were not monotheistic. They were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. But Israel was set apart because they believed in one God, the true God. And so morning and evening, an Orthodox Jew would say the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then throughout worship, they would repeat the same phrase. 
there was a constant reference to the belief that they were set apart from the pagan nations because they believed in the one true God. And he says, if you believe that, you do well. In other words, listen to this, you're right on your theology proper. You got it down. That's good. You believe in the one God. You believe in the one true God. You believe in the God of the Old Testament. You believe in the God of creation. You believe in the God who who ordained life. You believe in the God who brought Israel into existence. You believe all of those things. That's wonderful. But then he says these words, verse eight, verse 19, even the demons believe this. Even the demons believe. I mean, they are orthodox too. Did you know the demons don't have any errors in their theology? They don't. You know why? Because they know the truth. But they love to lead astray, don't they? They love to lead astray. They believe... <laughs> There's a lot of people who don't believe this book chapter to chapter and beginning to end, but I grant you, the demons believe it. They know it's true. And I'm sure they're laughing every time somebody gets up and says, oh, that's not true. That's not real. No, that's not accurate. No, that's not historically accurate. And they're like, man, you have no clue. You are so dumb. And they believe, though. They believe. But here's the point that James brings up, and this is his driving home point. They believe, but they believe more than you do because they tremble. They tremble. The word translated here for tremble is the word to shudder. To shudder. It also has the idea of um, bristling. If you can ever think of a time maybe when you were even scared as a child and the hair stands up on the back of your neck. It's that kind of terror that you have, right? And he's talking about that kind of fear. And the, the demons understood that. If you remember the occasion whenever Jesus came and he came to the man that was filled with the legion of demons. And whenever Jesus shows up, the demons recognize Jesus. And they say, have you come to torment us before our time? They literally lived in fear of God. They had a fear for God. They lived in terror of the Lord himself. I mean back whenever he cast out those demons. And they went into the herd of pigs. Why would they want to go into a herd of pigs? Why would they even request that? Because they knew that their other destination was not pigs. It was the pit. The abyss. They had fear. They trembled. And what James is saying is. Listen. These demons believe, and they actually respond in fear. You believe, and you have no fear. The demons believe, and they have at least the fruit of fear. You believe, and you have no fruit. No fruit. And that's exactly what James is trying to drive home here, that even though the demons believe and shudder, these who have this faith that is not a saving faith does not produce genuine fruit, genuine worship, genuine allegiance, genuine obedience. All of that is not there. So he concludes in verse 20, But do you want to know, O man, or O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now, the King James, or the New King James, uses the word necros here for dead. Some other manuscripts actually have the word argos for useless at verse 20, where it says, but are you willing to recognize, O foolish fellow, as the legacy standard translates it, that faith without works is useless. And the word argos is a word that means fruitless. 
fruitless. Lack of productivity. It's like the tree that does not bear fruit that Jesus said would be cut down and thrown into the fire. That person who is genuinely saved, listen to this, is saved and justified and made righteous by God because they have faith in Christ alone. They have faith alone in Christ. But that true genuine faith, if it is real, is going to produce fruit and works. Now the next time we come together, he's going to use some very common illustrations the Jews would be familiar with. One is Abraham and the other is Rahab. And we'll look at that together the next time. So let's pray together as we close. Our Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the profound nature of the truth that we've listened to today from your scripture. And Lord, this is a sobering truth, that you could actually be so closely affiliated with the truth in this heaven altogether, that you could be orthodox, that you could have all of your theology right and have your church attendance and yet miss the Lord himself. I pray, Father, for every person in this room, that if they don't have true, genuine faith, that you would grant them the saving faith that they need, that you would grant them true, genuine repentance to turn from their sin and to follow Christ that you would enable them, Lord God, to confess Jesus as their Savior and Lord by your power. And Lord, help us as believers to have assurance as we look at our lives, as Paul told us to do so, to examine ourselves, to make sure we're in the faith, to look at the fruit, see what's there, if it's real. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.